Welcome to the Create Something Awesome Today podcast, where it's all about educating and motivating creative pros and entrepreneurs from around the world with simple and easy to implement ideas. And of course, helping you create something awesome today. And now, welcome your host. He is the founder of Founder of Awesome Creator Academy, a YouTube educator, and the biggest Star Wars nerd you'll ever meet, Roberto Blake. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Create Something Awesome Today podcast. This is your host, Roberto Blake, helping you create something awesome today. Welcome to another Night Owl edition of the podcast. So in this episode, we're going to be talking about NFTs, blockchain, cryptocurrency, and the current state of the metaverse. Yes, all of your favorite things, and that is what you can expect in today's episode. This one is actually uh, something I've been looking forward to talking about for a while, and I will definitely be covering it again at some point because there's a lot of controversy about Web 3.0. There's a massive amount of skepticism around Web 3.0, and I want to talk about it. So real quick, I'm actually going to uh, let more people know, and we are live. And so for those of you listening to the audio only, you should definitely make sure you're subscribed to the YouTube channel and you have notifications on. You never know when I'm going to be going live, but this one is something that I think is important because it represents the future. A lot of you know that I'm a bit of an internet old head. I am 37 years old, which means that uh, in, back in my day, back in my day, uh, nothing on the internet was free. Back in my day, Free hosting was 20 megabytes. You were lucky if you could get two songs uploaded to the internet. Back in my day, we had LimeWire, BearShare, and Napster.com, and that's how you got free stuff. Yeah, illegally. Uh, so, so, yeah, so that was uh, the internet I grew up with. Uh, I've been on the internet since I was like 13 years old. So I've literally been on the internet for decades at this point. I'm 37. It's been a minute here. So I, I've been doing this internet thing for almost 25 years now. And I learned how to code at 13. And I've been there since like the days of AOL 6.0 and Earthlink and Net Zero, Angel Fire, GeoCities, Lycos. I've literally seen uh, the evolution of us go from a web 1.0 world to a web 2.0 world and now to a Web 3.0 world. So let me kind of even break that down for you just so you, you get a better understanding of what's happening here. When we talk about Web 1.0, we're talking about the internet basically being online magazines, being things that institutions uh, just put in front of you and you read what the institutions, the establishment, and the gatekeepers wanted you to have. In Web 1.0, if you remember, the ability to publish to the internet was in the hands of the few. Most everyday people didn't have a website, a blog, were not the ones in control of the online forums, were not the ones truly, truly in control of uh, Yahoo chat rooms, AOL, any of it. We had very little ability to put our own opinions out there outside of controlled very, very controlled environments in Web.0, and you could only really read, watch, or listen to what was coming up from establishment media sources. So it was all the publishing companies, all of the radio stations, the television networks, 
the publishing houses, whatever they wanted to allow you to have is what you could consume on the internet and web 1.0. And I'm sure all of you who are over the age of 30 have a basic memory of that. And you know, this is something nostalgic for you and you can go, yeah. And it was a very limited form of the internet. There wasn't a lot that you really could do, but it was revolutionary for us. And it was a great experience. And it got a lot of us into the things that we're into today in terms of technology and so on and so forth. There was very little interactive media. Our ability to interact and express ourselves was limited to message boards and chat rooms. And that was basically it. We didn't really have the means to publish. We could not really have that much of a voice. We got to have communities in a very limited way, but that was it. That was all we really had. We didn't have a voice. We didn't have the ability to publish. We didn't have the ability to uh, compete, frankly, in the uh, internet market. It was very limited. And if you wanted to do any of that, it was wildly expensive and wildly cost prohibitive. Web hosting, not affordable. Domain names, getting snatched up, getting bought up. We didn't really have any say. We didn't have any representation for the average person in the first iteration, really, of the internet in Web 1.0. And it stayed that way from the 1980s all the way through the early 2000s. So we had 20 years of a very static and very stagnant internet where our points of view could never be represented, could never be scaled, and where the individual didn't have any power whatsoever. None. Okay? And I think you all remember that, and you, you know how different today is from that, yes? You realize how different today, 20 years later, things are, and that ordinary people can become extraordinary in terms of publishers, that ordinary people now have the ability to have a voice, be represented. We become the media. We can become the news. We can compete. And not only can we compete, we can dominate and we can win. And our point of view can be uh, more represented, can outperform the establishment media and the institutions and the gatekeepers. And that's because of Web 2.0. Web 2.0 was the democratization of the internet. Web 2.0 was the platforms that allowed you to not just read, but you to be able to write. It gave you the ability to publish. Web 2.0 introduced the social media phenomenon, which was really about user-generated content. Now, it wasn't establishment-generated content. It was user-generated content. And what was at the forefront of that? It was MySpace. It was um, Zynga. It was Facebook. It was Friendster. It was the early uh, YouTube and Vidler and all of the early video sharing apps and capabilities. It was that. It was my journal. It was Pinterest. Later, Instagram and so on and so forth. And then you would have other iterations of that. So yeah, you had Zanga. You had Live Journal. You had those things. That was Web 2.0. Yahoo chat rooms were Web 1.0. And this was Web 2.0, user-generated content. And this was the true scaling of the internet, really, to get more people involved. But also, it gave us something very important, many very important things. It gave us the ability to have a voice. 
and it gave us the ability to become publishers. It gave us the ability to challenge the establishment gatekeepers, and it gave us the ability to monetize and to own a piece of the market for ourselves in a real way, in a real way. It was radically different, and that's what the Web 2.0 revolution really was. Think about it. Because of the Web 2.0 revolution, a musician didn't necessarily have to go and get on the radio or sign away their life in a record deal like Taylor Swift to be put on. You could put your stuff out on SoundCloud. You could put yourself out on MySpace, and you could go viral. And you could go ahead and you could make a name for yourself. You could put yourself out there on YouTube. You could make your own music videos. You could do those things and you could get attention and you could get noticed as a musician and an artist. You could get a record deal if it meant something to you to get one, but you also could be just put on by your fans. And this is important because this was the beginning. Because today, there's not an artist that has to go through what Taylor Swift or Prince or anyone from Motown ever went through in terms of basically signing their life away to a record label because now they can go directly to the fans. That matters, and that's important. You have now an evolution of that with, uh, with video, with YouTube and TikTok and these other user-generated platforms. Writers and journalists are finding new life and independent journalists are finding new life in Substack and vocal.com and medium.com. And this is important. Authors that would never get published got to do so because of Amazon and Kindle Direct. Platforms gave us some measure of power, but we are beholden to the landlords. At the end of the day, it's still their internet. So you now understand, does everybody who's with me in the replay of this, in the comments, in the live, do you understand why the transition from Web 1.0, establishment media and publishing, to the democratization of the internet mattered with Web 2.0, but you realize that its failure is still the fact that we're beholden to the landlords, right? When I put it like that, it makes sense. Because they can take away that power that you have very easily, and they can limit it very easily. And I think a lot of you have experienced that frustration in some form or another. And so that brings us to Web 3.0. If you think that Web 2.0 was important, and I think everybody agrees that it was, I think everyone agrees that it was necessary, it was essential, it was vital, and it changed the world for the better. I think that people understand why Web 2.0 mattered. Now, here's the thing. Web 2.0 did get us to a place to where we could start monetizing. It absolutely got us to a place where we could start monetizing. And it made um, the transition of media and commerce much more free for the average person because it did more than just gave us the ability to publish. It gave us the ability to do business. You now have the ability to spin up online stores with a lower cost than if you were renting a physical location. You got e-commerce. You got the ability to publish and get royalties. You got the ability to broadcast. It opened up the ability for you to do transactions. However, you still had to cut somebody in on it. And that's the difference. You still had to cut somebody in on it. You still had to pay the piper. You had to pay middlemen. And so Web 3.0, a big part of Web 3.0, and the NFTs, the blockchain, the digital currencies, all of it, and everything else that comes from it, is about a couple of key things. It's about ownership 
probably first and foremost. And it's about transparency. And it's also about scale. And I can't speak to what Web 4.0 will be. But let's put it to you like this. Web 1.0 was access to information at scale and instantaneously. So uh, Web 1.0 was access. Web 2.0, you could think of it as now being equitable, a little bit more equitable. So you could say, okay, we gave you access to information at level one. At level two, we allowed you to participate and we gave you a little bit of equity. Not all the leverage in the world, but a little bit of equity. Well, the next evolution of that at level three is true ownership. And part of that is the fact that we're talking about peer-to-peer -peer technologies now. So that's the difference. It's about peer-to-peer. And the decentralization is distribution. So the thing is, it'd be very, it's like, think about it like this. A lot of you are old enough to remember the original Terminator series, Terminator 1, Terminator 2, before it got very, very complicated. You know how John Connor and the Resistance beat the machines in Terminator 1 and in Terminator 2 in their future? Skynet was directly attacked, and they attacked the facility and destroyed Skynet's centralized database. Centralized database. That's because Skynet launched early. <laughs> it launched before the internet was really a thing. Delaying Judgment Day made Skynet invincible, <laughs> technically, because by the time you get to the point of decentralization, by the time you get to the point of the cloud, there's no centralized database to go take out Skynet, so to speak. Now, you might think that, well, that's definitely, let's go uh, in the opposite direction of that. It's like, no, we have to go forward with it anyway, even if it means we're doomed. But because <laughs> it means like the ride will be really good along the way as we march to our doom. But the, the thing is, all joking aside, all joking aside, decentralization is really interesting because it means that it becomes much harder for something to be destroyed, which means it becomes much harder for you to be silenced. It becomes much harder in a decentralized internet for you to be silenced. It becomes much harder for you to lose your platform and lose your voice in that world. And so that's going to be very important in the future, I promise. The other thing is that right now it's very difficult to determine in a digital form who owns what. And in analog, in the physical world, it's also really hard sometimes to keep track of chain of custody of ownership. You might have remembered that like long time ago, like records sometimes before we had um, a lot of the technology we have, you've, you've had problems with the records being lost or records not being synced up or records being disputed or forgeries and all these other things. You've seen it with land disputes um, and land theft. You've seen it with inheritances and so on and so forth. I'm not saying that today we have the answer to that technology, but with blockchain technology and decentralization and things like non-fungible tokens and tokenizing things and smart contracts, we get to a place to where you have transparency, chain of custody, and digital immortality, 
which means that the preservation of records, of information, of titles, of deeds, of ownership, knowing who owns what can be done in terms of everyone has said reductively that a non-fungible token, an NFT, basically is a certificate of authenticity. And so because they're only viewing it as crypto art, JPEGs, PNGs, well, JPEGs and PNGs of board apes or yachts or whatever may not be meaningful, but it's just an example of it. But wouldn't um, a chain of custody and the digital immortality and decentralization of something very, very important, like the someone's living will or trust, wouldn't that be very important? Have we not heard stories of where people, because you can't find the documents or the will that somebody left behind, that people are cheated out of inheritances or people change people's wills after the fact that families break apart and fight over this? We've seen things like that. Imagine that the future is that there is a digitized, immortal will and trust for somebody and it's done through a smart contract that is tokenized. And so there's a digital chain of custody that is going to transfer ownership in a way that can be accounted for. Because now there's um, a certificate of authenticity, just like we were saying. So it's a transparent chain of custody. And it's an immortal ledger because it's decentralized. And so you can see how, yes, if you don't think that... Uh, a board ape or a, a crypto art or whatever it is, is meaningful and valuable to you. Okay, cool. You may not think that a Monet is valuable to you, whatever. And so, and again, I'm talking about technology. I'm not talking about financial advice. I'm talking about technology. I'm not the uh, accountant. I'm not a, you know, certified public accountant or one of those financial people or a lawyer or nothing. I'm a guy who likes technology and always has. I've been on the internet for about 25 years now, but the thing is, if you really consider the implications and the fact that today, today, um, social media influencers and not just social media influencers, a lot of people, even people working remotely, we are signing digital contracts via email. DocuSign is one of the most valuable. DocuSign is one of the most valuable uh, companies in the world for a reason, because we're doing digital contracts already. Now imagine that there is a much even more secure method of digital contracts and chain of custody. At Coffee Talk in Tech, who's here in the live chat, makes an excellent point. This is why the government is in no rush for smart contracts. No, I agree. Also, specifically, when it comes to inheritances and things, by the way, depending on what state you live in, if you don't have a living will, if you don't have a trust and something happens to you, the government seizes a lot of those assets or the majority of them anyway, instead of just taxing them. So whenever you don't have that paperwork in place, the government loves it. The government benefits when somebody kicks the bucket and it helps itself to everything they ever got in life. And so the government is like, not really, do you realize how much money the government is going to lose uh, when smart contracts are a thing when it comes to somebody's uh, will and testament, when it comes to somebody's last will and testament being digitized, immortal, and um, the, the thing is something that's transparent and there's a chain of custody and there's an immediate technology to alert 
to to literally alert next of kin and it's all done digitally and it's like nope we all right we know what's happening now this protocol goes into place these things automatically happen oh the assets automatically transfer government doesn't get its grubby hands on it do you realize how much money the government is going to lose because people actually won't be cheated out of their inheritance anymore it's going to be prolific the government is going to lose billions and billions of dollars in perpetuity forever after this. Maybe trillions. So of course they're not fans of this. Here's another one for you. Okay, let's move aside from NFTs. Let's talk about digital currencies. Let's talk about technologies like uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. Everything else aside, let's reduce these and say that these things are almost no different than the digital currencies that happen in video games. And yes, you can buy them with fiat. You've always been able to buy digital in-game currencies for over maybe 20 years now. For over 20 years, we've had games online. For over 20 years, we've had games online. You can spend money to buy the games online, download them online. Everybody knows that. But in-game transactions, in-game transactions um, have always been a thing for a very long time. For maybe 20 years now, in-game transactions have been a real thing. And you buy in-game items, digital items, and in-game currency, digital money, with real money, with fiat, with your dollars, or with your yuan, or with your dinar, whatever your currency is, okay? You've always been able to say it's valuable to you, the individual, to transfer that money to this digital world to have a digital experience that you wanted to have. You've always been able to do that. You've always been able to do that at events. And what and, and the fact that you can reconvert back to fiat is no different than has existed for a hundred for hundreds of years in casinos. When you go to a casino, you're buying chips that can only be used in that casino. They can't be used in another casino. They cannot be exchanged in another casino. They cannot be cashed at another casino. They're worthless outside the casino. And they can be exchanged for what? Fiat. And guess what? Digital currencies are the same thing. So everybody freaking out is ignoring that you've been able to do the same thing with casino chips for like forever, like hundreds of years, however long we've had gambling. However long we've had gambling, you've been able to convert your regular money into currency that can only be used in a single place, in a single location, in a single way and then convert that back if you gain or if you lose. Literally just like in a casino. It's casino chips. How are people gonna sit here and like freak out, complain about it, talk about, like it's literally casino chips. What's the difference? Explain it to me. There's not really, in terms of the material difference of what we're talking about functionally, there's layers and layers of cool things that are after that, sure. But at the end of the day, this is not something that new. And so you can buy a game's currency in the game. If I go and I log into Magic the Gathering Arena right now, if I log into Magic the Gathering Arena right now, I can buy gems and I can buy gold. I can buy gems and I can buy gold. I can exchange the gems and the gold in Magic the Gather Arena for packs of digital cards. Those digital cards are uniquely assigned to me, the player, and not to any other account. So wait, 
that means that this one thing is not like the other. Well, and I can't just exchange this thing equivalent to another thing. Well, that makes it non-fungible. And if it's digital, that makes it a token, which means every in-game digital item that is tied to a unique player is a non-fungible token. Every unique digital item in a video game tied and linked to a unique player is a non-fungible token. It is a non-fungible item. It is a digital asset. It is a digital experience. And it can be acquired and it can be attained either through in-game means or through a transaction with in-game currency. In-game currency can be purchased with fiat. That is the reality. Board, uh, board fan says, those premium currencies are used to scam people, though, Roberto. And my answer to that, as harsh as it sounds, is so effing what? You act like no scams exist with fiat. You act like the banks don't scam you. You act like there's no scams with fiat. You act like there's no scams with physical items not being what was promised. What's the difference? Scams are scams, period. Oh, there's a new technology. There's a new world. There's a new thing. Oh, well, people can get scammed. Well, people were getting scammed before that thing existed. My answer is so what? Everyone yells, scam, 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 scam. And my answer is cry more. So what? You know who gets scammed? People who get scammed are either trying to get rich quick or they are uneducated, don't read the fine print, don't pay attention to details, or they're effing stupid. People get scammed all the time. You're going to act like people have never been scammed by counterfeit dollar bills. You're going to act like people have never been scammed in a card game hustle because they were trying to get rich quick. You're, like People get scammed... Uh, with fake uh, print money because they're not paying attention. People get scammed, and sometimes, yeah, there's innocent victims. I'm not saying everybody deserves to be scammed or nothing. That's stupid. I'm just saying that scams happen all the time, literally. You know how many employees scam their employers? You know how many employers scam their employees? Uh, we're not going to shut down employment, though, right? Because that'd be stupid. <laughs> that'd be stupid. You want to talk about scams? Look at the deficit and tell me how it's not a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> like, I mean, seriously, at this point, I mean, at this point, it's like we already know that, like, you, hey, there's so many ways for you. You want to talk about scams? All right, let's talk about the fact that you have um, all these situations where you shouldn't be paying money, but you're not being told that you can claim your deductions, but the government knows what deductions you're entitled to, but they're not telling you, hey, you overpaid us. You should actually be paying less. They don't do that. So that seems to me personally, that sounds to me personally like that was money that was gained through some sort of deception, even potentially by just omission. If the government is taking money from you in taxes that you would not otherwise owed, if they informed you of what you're entitled to, that seems to me like a lie of omission. If you're doing a lie of omission, well, that's called deception. So I don't know. I'm not a lawyer or nothing. Allegedly, I say that if it's a lie of omission that otherwise allows someone to extract dollars from you at a bare minimum for being generous, that could be considered dishonest and exploitative. And if we're not being generous, you could argue that that's scam-like behavior or at least scumbag behavior.
Here's the thing, though. Me personally, and this is just me personally, you know it's the only thing can inoculate and protect people from scams? The only thing that can inoculate and protect people from scams is people not being ignorant and people not trying to get rich quick. People who fall for pump and dump crypto schemes, I'll talk about it, pump and dump crypto schemes. So you mean to tell me that people who believe in dubious influencers who already have massive scandals, have poor reputations, have been caught in lies, have been exposed by drama channels and commentary channels, rightfully so, that then tell you about a wonderful investment opportunity are maybe dubious, shady, and not to be trusted, and that they are responsible for rug pulls? Oh, say it ain't so. I'm shocked. I'm appalled. I can't believe that people that have been caught lying, that have literally hundreds of videos exposing their lies in 4K, aren't really good people to take financial advice from, are not good stewards of the economy, and are not, oh, going out and ripping off their fans. I would have never thought that was possible of them. They're such upstanding people of righteous character who've never done anything questionable. I can't believe that that's something that would happen. Come on, let's be very real here. Let's be very real here. I'm not saying that people deserve it. I'm saying that this was an obvious foregone conclusion that could have been avoided by most people that are being reasonable and making sober choices and decisions in life probably will not do this. And in general, people pay a price for being incredibly naive in life. And it usually... The lesson sticks after the first one, two, or three times, and that's how life is. That's how life is. You live and you learn. You make mistakes, and then you learn. And sometimes you make mistakes with your money, and they're harsh, and it's unfortunate. I'm not saying they had it coming. I'm not giving the scammers a free pass. I'm saying there's a reason that most people don't fall for it. There's a reason why the far majority of people do not fall for scams. It is a very limited minority and group of people, and either it has to do with their overall lack of common sense or the fact that they themselves are dubious and are trying to um, you know, make a quick buck without actually making an exchange of real value or taking things into consideration, or they're willful degenerate gamblers, willful degenerate gamblers. So um, you know, it sucks. It's not good that that's happening. However, at the same time, people are willing and active knowing participants of knowing who they're getting into bed with in most of these cases. And if they didn't, there was an abundance of evidence to suggest that maybe, just maybe, this isn't who you should be getting into bed with here. It's not like there wasn't a way for them to be informed about it. Just saying. Most of the adults that I know I've never got scammed. Do you know why most of the adults I know have never got scammed? Because they're not trying to get 15 years of lifestyle in 15 days. Uh, James Dean says, I believe in crypto, but NFTs are clearly an MLM scam pyramid scheme. No, the ones you have seen and the ones that you know about are. Do you think that, like James Dean, let me ask you something. Do you think that Disney's NFTs are an MLM and a pyramid scheme. Do you believe that Disney Corporation with the NFTs that they're releasing are participating in an, in an MLM scam or a pyramid scheme? Is Disney 
and EA. And what's this other company that recently um, did an acquisition and is doing NFTs? Now, there's like this huge company that just recently did. But I know about Disney and EA and Nike and Adidas. Are they participating in MLM scams and pyramid schemes with their NFT releases? Yes or no? Yes, sir. Ubisoft. So are Ubisoft, Disney, EA, Adidas, and Nike participating in MLL scams or pyramid schemes? Yes or no? That's a yes or no. Are they or aren't they? And the reason I'm, I'm directing that and I'm directing it so aggressively is you can't just say that all of this is bad. You can't just say, well, you think it's a quick, you think that they're doing a cash grab. You don't think that them releasing any product is a cash grab. They're called corporations. Everything they do is a cash grab and everything they do, they want the fastest return on investment. So you can't just say it's a quick crash grab. You just, you can't say it's a quick cash grab to say that it is a scam. You can't say that. And then you can't show me you have to show me the structure of what they're doing to say that it's also an mlm you have to show me that and then if you're going to say that nike disney adidas um ubisoft and ea are all shady companies show me show me extraordinary claims like extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof extraordinary claims require extraordinary proof show me that they're doing that. Show me that they're a pyramid scheme. Show me that these literally multi-billion, some of them half a trillion dollar companies are doing uh, something that is shady, illicit, illegal in that regard and show that to me. Because you can't say that, that non-fungible token technology is a scam. You can say that, hey, so-and-so is running a scam using NFTs. You can't say NFTs are a scam. You have to say, well, this person is running a scam. You have to say this person is running a scam and you have to show evidence and you have to show what they did. You can't just blanket label the entire thing like that. Watch this. What if I said that, um, what if I said something to the blanket statement that all social media websites are a scam? I could say that. I could rile up what people dislike about Facebook and Zuckerberg and Instagram and YouTube and Google. I could just say that all social media websites are a scam, or I could say that all media outlets lack integrity. I could say that all the mainstream media, every news outlet, I could say that the entire fourth estate of journalism is corrupt. And I, but I can't prove that, nor is that a reasonable claim in any way for me to make. At just because individual people and individual organizations that share that thing in common, I can't like make that claim. It is not a reasonable claim to make. It's not a reasonable claim for me to make in any way, shape, or form. I could make the argument that 3D printing can't exist because somebody can use it to make uh, dangerous, non-traceable weapons. So should 3D printing not exist just because some people can use it in that way? People can use 3D printing to cause true material physical harm in the real world and make 
Weapons that can't be detected by metal detectors. Should 3D printing not exist? I don't see a lot of argument and debate about that when literally lives can be at stake. Lives can be at stake as a result of 3D printing technology. I don't see any outrage. I don't see any internet outrage over that. I see it over cryptocurrency, blockchain technology, and NFTs. And at best, the worst thing that that's ever going to do is some fool will be parted with their money, which will happen anyway. It'll be something else. We're talking about technology that can literally cause material harm or could be weaponized in unfathomable ways. At the same time, 3D printing technology also can help us address homelessness. It can also reduce the cost of building homes. It can actually help us deal with the affordable housing crisis. So is all the material good of a technology outweighed by the few bad actors or the material harm that it can do? So we all lose on the benefits of technology. This is how nuclear power got demonized, by the way. This is how nuclear power got demonized and how it benefited the oil companies. By the way, this is how hemp and marijuana and CBD got demonized, which benefited a lot of different industries that wanted that to happen. Board fan, I'm of the opinion that it's like scams happen to the minority of people and it happens mostly to people who are uneducated and the cure to scams is financial literacy, the end. The cure to scams is financial literacy and law enforcement doing their job, the end. Same as it's always been. James, you say, I can say that because there's no practical reason for any consumer to buy an NFT. James, you're assuming that NFTs are all crypto art, if you're saying that, and you're assuming that non-fungible token technology, which is blockchain technology used in a specific application, is not already being used in practical, functional, everyday things, nor are you taking into account the real estate applications of NFTs, the auto industry already using this type of technology. What do you think your car fob is? What do you think the car fob key for your vehicle is. You do know that that's already utilizing a variation of this, right? And you realize that that's gonna become normative more in the future in terms of that. You realize that this is gonna be having implications in the travel industry and it's being adopted in that way. Do research on NFTs, all of you, that exist outside of people buying crypto art. Because here's the other problem with the education around this. Everyone thinks that damn crypto art and bored apes are what NFTs are. They are an application of NFTs. You know what? OnlyFans and Pornhub are an application of HTML, PHP, and MySQL script. They are not everything that you get out of hypertext transfer protocols and hypertext markup language. Do you get what I'm saying? That's just an expression. It is just an end result of what the technology can produce and how people are commonly using it. That's all it is. And I think that people are either purposely or maybe they're not that like just not understanding what things actually are versus the hype that they are seeing. I think most people who hate NFTs and hate uh, crypto just hate obnoxious influencers who talk about it all the time. Because guess what? In 2005, all the experts said that there was no practical applications for the internet. You say there's no practical reason for a consumer to buy an NFT right now. In 2005, 
they said the same thing. I can look it up. There's articles. There are articles in print that people said with their whole chest, and these people still have jobs today in the media. And they said it with their whole chest that in 2005, they said the internet would never have any significant impact on our economy. And they said that it was a fad that would die. And they said the same thing about social media and Facebook in 2010 with their whole chest. These people somehow still have credibility, by the way. I don't know what happened. And they're the same people who also will try to convince you that cryptocurrencies, blockchain technology, and NFTs are all a dead end. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I remember these jokers all the way. Do you, you want to talk about scams? In 2008... Everyone thought that putting your debit card and credit card into a website and an internet was a guaranteed scam. They thought buying anything off of eBay was a guaranteed way to get scammed. eBay scammers were running amok in the early 2000s. eBay's still around. eBay's still around. PayPal scams were running amok in the 2000s. What are you talking about? So you, 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 you have to really like, because again, what are you going to do? Let's assume, let's assume, just humor me for a minute. Just humor me for a minute. Everybody here who may be against NFTs and against cryptocurrency and against blockchain for whatever your reasons are, let's just, let, let's entertain, just humor me for a minute. Let's entertain the idea that I'll be right about this in 10 or 15 years and you'll be wrong. What are you what are you going to say in 20 years when this is as normal as Pokemon cards became normalized? What are you going to do when this is as normal as people playing World of Warcraft? What are you going to do when this is as normal as online gaming? What are you going to do when this is as normal as YouTube and Facebook and Discord servers? What do you do and what do you say if in 5, 10, 15 years, all this stuff that you say is bad or has no practical applications or is a scam, what do you do when it's legitimized in 5, 10, or 15 years? And what are, or how do you walk that back when it becomes a common practice among digital citizens? Because guess what? YouTube is not something that everybody, everybody uses and not everybody and not everybody ultimately uh, sees the value and benefit of YouTube. And they certainly didn't see the value and benefit of YouTube in 2005, 2006, 2008, 2010. If I explained to you back a few years ago what YouTube is and how people make you money off of YouTube, all of you would say it's a scam. Let me, let me roll back the clock again to the AOL days, AOL 6.0. Let me roll you back to AOL 6.0. Imagine in the days of AOL and the early internet, in the early internet when we had dial-up or when we just moved from dial-up to DSL or to broadband. Let me explain something to you. Imagine me going back to you in 2007 and telling you there is a website that will allow you to upload videos in full HD and that now there's this thing called 4K video, and you'd be like, that's not real, that's not possible. And what if I told you that they will not charge you any hosting fees, they will not charge you any bandwidth fees, and they will allow you to upload videos of any length for zero dollars, and you could host unlimited videos 
unlimited numbers of files of a limited length and unlimited size, even if it was terabytes upon terabytes upon terabytes that you could upload a thousand videos. And even if they were an hour long, you would pay zero dollars. If I went back and I told you that in 2005, 2006, 2007, 2008, 2009, 2010, that it would cost you zero dollars and you could host unlimited video files of unlimited size and unlimited length, you would tell me to my face that I'm a damn scammer and that I need to be locked up and that I'm up to something and I'm up to no good, and you would call the FBI. You would not believe me if I told you what YouTube was and what they were allowing you to do for $0. You would not have entertained any of that. And if worse... I told you that they will pay you money. You would have damn sure believed I was scamming you. So don't hit sit, like so you can sit here with all your skepticism if you want. Just remember that if I go back in time in my DeLorean right now and I tell you what YouTube is and what YouTube will be in the future, that you will tell me to my face that I'm a scammer and I'm a liar and I'm the worst scumbag in the universe if I got in a DeLorean right now and I told you what YouTube is. So don't sit here and pretend like that's not true. Let's sit here and not pretend that that's not true. By the way, people use YouTube to proliferate scams and do stuff all the time. So YouTube shouldn't exist because, you know, but people made that argument. People in Congress made that argument. People made the argument of wanting to take away your ability to even monetize on YouTube in many ways. And, and because of the fact that there were bad actors and there were people that um, were, you know, doing extremist recruitment and running extremist ads and extremist videos, they wanted to limit your free speech and your ability to monetize because of a few bad apples doing that stuff. You agree with that? You agree with them shutting down over that? Remember COPPA and how they demonetized creators over COPPA? Did you agree with that? Right. That's what I thought. So, it, it, again, this is the same thing. You don't want to admit it. You don't want to see it from that perspective, probably, for one reason or another. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. Because, again, let's assume they found and they round up all the scammers, or let's assume there were no scammers. What would your complaint be then? You'd find something. You'd find something. If there were no crypto scammers, you'd find something, because guess what the other argument people come up with? It's bad for the environment. Human beings existing is bad for the environment. What practical purpose do human beings serve to the planet Earth? We consume resources everywhere we go. We don't form a natural equilibrium with the environment. We are directly responsible for massive uh, carbon monoxide and CO2 emissions. Um, you know, like... What do we like? What purpose do we serve functionally? Oh, but we want to exist, which is great because yay, humans, right? We don't have a real great net positive impact on Mother Earth at all. So, blockchains, NFTs, yeah, that's the evolution of us continuing to do what humans do <laughs> consume resources, consume energy for our convenience and for our personal benefit and for our own enrichment and enjoyment, like we've always done. We've always done that. What, you think building cities has a net positive impact on the environment? We're still going to do it. 
like we're going to keep going. We're going to be humans. Humans are going to be humans. We're going to keep consuming resources. We're going to keep consuming energy. We're going to keep, you know, producing some level of carbon emissions until we can work some more of that out. We're going to be harmful to the environment as long as human beings exist. We're the single biggest threat to this planet. We're the only species on this earth that have contrived the way to probably destroy the entire planet and every living thing on it. Because we extra. Like, that's what human beings are. We're the single greatest threat to the environment. We are the single greatest threat to the planet. We might be the single greatest threat to the galaxy. We might be the galaxy's boogeyman. Everything that lives out there that is intelligent probably knows better than to come to Earth because this is a bad neighborhood. And you come to Earth, you come to this solar system, you come to the Milky Way, roll your windows up in your spacecraft because this is a bad neighborhood and it's rough out here. Earth is probably the most hood place in the galaxy. Earth is probably the most ratchet place in the galaxy. I'm not even joking about it. <laughs> so when you think about it, if you think about it, and I'm being, I'm being a little facetious, I'm having fun here on the midnight run of the podcast, but I mean, let's think about it. If I told you what YouTube was years ago, you would have had massive skepticism around it. You would have had massive like, you know, like, nope, too good to be true. This is a scam. There's no way you would have ever believed that YouTube would host unlimited files on unlimited videos for unlimited lengths of time for zero dollars because back in the day, free web hosting was not even remotely a thing. So you would have never believed that YouTube was anything but a scam. And then them paying you for it, you wouldn't have believed that it was anything but a scam based on that alone. When I describe all the things YouTube gives us for free, yeah, it sounds like a scam. We take it for granted every day how good it is. We take for granted how good it is. Do you realize that from the perspective of anyone who lived from like the AOL 6.0 and 7.0 days and remembers AngelFire, GeoCities, and Lycos as the only thing that gives you free hosting, um, there's no way that they would have anticipated the internet that we have uh, today. There's no way they would have anticipated that internet and all the blessings and all the things that we get out of it and the ways that we can monetize it. We would have never anticipated that kind of technological leap, and we would have been skeptical of all of this. We would have been skeptical of all of this. Do you realize how many people, when I tell them that when they say, well, how people have asked me, people have asked me, how much does it cost to publish a book with Amazon Kindle. And when I tell them it's free, they're like, no, you must be lying. There's no way it's free. When I tell people that, they're like, no, you're lying. It's, it, there's no way it can be free. That's not possible. When I tell people that you can literally use free software to do most of the things we do today, if they're not tech savvy already, when I tell people who never became tech savvy in their teenage years or in their mid-20s, that are very, because there's a lot of people that are very tech savvy, not tech savvy, very tech illiterate today, very uh, ignorant of what the technology can do. When I tell them how much of this stuff is free, they always assumed that it cost a lot of money and that you can't do it if you're not rich. They have no idea. When I tell people and introduce them to free software, like, wait, wait, this is free software? This is free. It, it blows their minds. It blows their minds. So yeah, you can look at NFTs and Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and blockchain with all the skepticism in the world that you want. 
You're just becoming your parents. Your parents didn't believe that e-commerce would be real. Your parents would have thought Shopify was a scam. Your parents would have thought Amazon.com was a scam. Your parents would have thought eBay was a scam. Your parents would have thought most of the bloody internet today is a scam and probably did. Your parents probably thought the whole internet was a scam. Your, prob your parents thought that video games were a waste of time. And now there's kids that are making money playing video games. If I had told you, none of you would have believed me if I told you eight years ago that esports would be legitimate. None of you would have believed me. None of you would have believed me if I had told you that there would be massive esports gaming leagues where people make more money than boxers do. Do you realize that somebody getting the crap beat out of them in MMA or in professional boxing makes less money than the people who win esports matches right now? You would have never believed me. If I told you that people were going to be YouTube multimillionaires, decamillionaires before even age 30, if I had told you that five years ago, 10 years ago, you wouldn't have believed me. You wouldn't have believed me. You would have said that that's not possible and that that has to be some kind of scam or some kind of MLM or, or some kind of pyramid scheme. None of you would have ever believed in the creator economy 10 years ago. Not a single one of you. So again, be as skeptical as you want. And it's healthy to be skeptical. Become educated. Guess what? I thought, look, I'm an idiot. Do you know why I'm an idiot? I'm an idiot because people in my family, like my own mother wanted to invest in Bitcoin back in 2013. And I was like, I don't know. I think this is a scam. I don't know that this is going to work out. Oh, well, I don't know. Maybe the government regulates this away. And I was an idiot. I was a jackass. We'd be multi, multi-millionaires if I just let my mom roll the dice and buy 500 of Bitcoin in 2013. Come on. <laughs> and again, like I told all of you, digital currencies have been around for a very, very long time. Digital in-game currencies is something people have always been able to purchase. And like I told you, just like with the casinos, with the casinos, people have always been able to purchase the house casinos chips, use that, see if they get any gains, and cash it out for the house casinos chips, and it's worthless outside the casino. So it's the same thing. You can exchange digital currency, you can exchange fiat for digital currency, get gains or take losses, and then back again. Just like if you go to a casino, and again, I'm not trying to say that say that's gambling, but you should assume that it is or treat it that way. You should teach it as speculative, but just because it's speculative doesn't make it not real or doesn't mean that's a scam or doesn't mean that it's not something that has legitimacy or that you know isn't meaningful or that people haven't or can't make money off of it. And again, as for NFTs, when you guys hear NFTs, you're hearing Bored Ape and you're hearing crypto art and you're hearing crypto punks. That's not what an NFT is. That is someone using NFT technology to make that thing in the same way that Pornhub and OnlyFans are not HTML, PHP. They are websites that were built with HTML and PHP. You got me? It's like, those are just websites. Those crypto punks, those Bored Apes, those are just a product that someone produced as an NFT.
That is not what NFTs are. It's not the only things that they are. It's not the only things that they are. And by the way, I'm not pumping or shilling or promoting anybody's freaking token or coin or any of that. I haven't, and I'm not going to. And I don't really, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what the technology represents because I'll tell you a reason. Do you know why the the outrage and who wins with the outrage and the skepticism around blockchain technology? The traditional institutions, the financial institutions, the banks, and the government win. And the government win. Here's how, do you guys know how the banks make money? Let me give you one example. I'll give you just one example of how the banks make money off of you right now and why they need you to not have your money outside of the bank and why they make you fearful to have your money outside of the bank. If I were to leave my, like, actually, let's not even take the money I'm leaving the bank. Let's take the monthly fee. If I were not, if I didn't have the balance that I have in my bank account, I'd get charged a $12 a month monthly maintenance fee. If the bank did nothing for 25 years of my adult life, except take my monthly maintenance fee and buy their own stock over 25 years, if it's my particular bank, given what my bank's stock has been, if I make an assumption, if I make a conservative assumption, looking at the performance of my bank's stock, or you could use almost any bank stock at this point, and I look at 25 years in the future, my $12 a month would make my bank like $4 million or more in my lifetime. And that's just if they all they did was take my monthly maintenance fees and buy their own stock. Just off my monthly maintenance fees, in a 25-year period, my bank will make millions of dollars. Millions of dollars. Every dollar that you take out of the bank and that you put in the digital currencies, that's why they don't want you doing that. That's why they have a vested interest in seeing it fail. So think about that. And who do, what, who do the banks back? The institutions. Your traditional politicians. Gee, I wonder why. Same old thing, same old thing. Every industry that is disruptive to the power of institutions and the status quo will always be demonized and will always be regulated, and they will always use the media to manufacture outrage and frustration and skepticism and fear. They will always do that. They always have. Where do you think the uh, outrage around CBD and marijuana and hemp came from? And who did that benefit? That benefit institutional powers. And you know how valuable it is? It's so valuable that our country, America, spends about roughly $35 billion a year housing, clothing, and feeding incarcerated persons that are nonviolent just for drug possession. Nonviolent drug offenders are costing the American taxpayer over $30 billion a year. And then, then they'll convince you that they can't afford to do anything to help you and that they've got to raise more tax dollars to do it. Meanwhile, for a population of maybe less than a million people, they're spending about $35 billion on nonviolent, about $30, $35 billion on nonviolent drug offenders. And then they will tell you that the reason that they can't help you is they don't have enough tax money. And again, not trying to get political. I'm trying to get mathematical on you. I'm trying to get financial on you. It's like, oh, that's really convenient. That's really convenient. Hella convenient. It's a hella convenient that they want to digitize, that they want to demonize digital assets, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, and NFTs, 
It's really convenient that they want to do that. Yeah. Instead of, oh, I don't know, give you more freedom. Give you more freedom. They could do that. It's interesting that they want to regulate social media, which has lifted so many people out of poverty in the last decade, given people more freedom of expression, allowed us to catch them in lies, allow us to expose them, allow us to become more educated, um, allow us to become much more vocal, hold them accountable, get some people out of office, hold some people in mass positions of power and corruption uh, finally accountable after decades of them getting away with it. Oh, and now... This thing that was a joke in 2005, this thing that they thought was stupid in 2005, 2010, oh, now they want to regulate it. Now it's a threat because it holds them accountable and it takes away their power. Oh, you know what else is a thing that seems to be capable of helping us hold people accountable and take away their power? Oh, Web 3.0 technologies. You mean transparent public ledgers, transparency of transaction chain of custody, digital immortality, decentralization, hard to erase your tracks. Oh, oh, that's a threat. Oh, peer-to-peer -peer transactions that the banks can't benefit from. Oh, well, that's a threat. That's what, oh, introduce taxing unrealized gains on assets. Oh, really? Who does that benefit? So let's just think about that. Who does this stand to really harm. The people that stand to be harmed by digital currencies and blockchain technology and NFT is not the not the handful of naive people that are going to fall for obvious pump and dump schemes and scams because they're either stupid or desperate. No offense to anybody. Like, just to be real, and I'm having a little fun here with this. Like, I'm having a little bit of fun here. Like, Really, that's the thing that you're worried about. That's the thing that you're worried about. The thing, the per the people that stand to be hurt the most by you becoming educated. I'm not telling you to buy anything. I'm not telling you to buy Jack. I'm telling you become educated. Think about it. Every dollar that we, the people, decide to hold somewhere outside of the traditional banks for as long as we want and exchange it with each other makes the banks hurt because they don't get to either lend out that money multiple times, use it for their own speculative benefit. They want to talk about us speculating. They want to talk about us gambling. What did they do in 2008 with our money? They speculated and they gambled and they lost and caused the greatest financial crisis of all time. But Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and blockchain and NFTs are a threat. Really, that's what's going to hurt the economy. They gambled with our money and lost, so we're not allowed to take our own educated risk about things, but they can do that, and they know better. Oh, I see how it is. Rules for me and not for thee. Got it. That's all. Like, think about it. Just think about that for a minute. Think about what I just said. Am I being unreasonable? And you can feel free to let me know. You can feel free to disagree with me. Disagree with my premise and thesis. Plug holes in it if you have them. I'm open to it. But I've had time to think about this and consider the ramifications of disruption and technology. And I've looked at it. I've looked at what industries they've regulated, demonized, or went after in the past and why. So for me, it's looking at the fact that if you have digital currencies 
that exist over a decentralized network. And if we're able to say, well, I want to exchange value with this person or whatever, to me, it's the same thing as in-game transactions that I did in World of Warcraft or Magic the Gathering Arena or any other online game that I've ever played. It's the same thing. And we're turning fiat into that. And we're having these, uh, we're exchanging for the value and for the things that we want. We already buy digital goods. And the thing is, it's not for somebody to say what is valuable. If you're a YouTube content creator and you pay 20 or $30 to have somebody do a thumbnail for you as a thumbnail artist, well, to a normal person, they think about all the things they could buy with $30. And the thing is to them, a YouTube thumbnail wouldn't be a priority, but it would be to you because you are a YouTuber. So to sit there and say, well, I don't think that NFTs have any value, or I don't think crypto art has any value, or I don't think this thing has value, or I don't think Bitcoin has value. It's like, well, who are you? Who are you? It has value to whoever says it has value to. It has value. The value of something is what people will pay for it. It doesn't need to matter to you. And by the way, a lot of the people who are doing this, a lot of them are people, the, the people who do buy the crypto punks and all that stuff. These are wealthy people who have more money than both you and I. It's not really for us to figure out what they value or why. And the thing is, they're exchanging money with other rich people. It's not for you or I to really say it makes sense what people with that kind of money, with the kind of people that have $600,000 of disposable cash, disposable cash, it's not for you or I to decide what's worth it to them. These are the same people out here buying $20,000 purses. These are the same people wearing your or my car on their wrist. I, I'm like, I don't, I've given up trying to figure out what makes sense for a person with that much money. Cause I just don't know, <laughs> you know? So, so for me, I don't worry about that. I don't worry about the people who are buying crypto punks or that kind of stuff. Even the people who are buying the cheaper crypto art NFTs, they're just being part of a community. It's no different than when I would buy Pokemon cards or magic the gathering cards as a nerd. People who are not in that community and culture don't understand that either. And it's not their place to decide. Do you realize that no one believes that like no one outside of the Yu-Gi-Oh community believes that first edition holofoil Jinzo is worth $85. Okay. Nobody outside the Yu-Gi-Oh community believes that a first edition holofoil chaos emperor dragon envoy at the end is worth $200. You don't think that that piece of cardboard is worth money. If you exist outside of the Yu-Gi-Oh card game trading community, you don't believe that a shadowless holographic first edition Charizard is worth $20,000. If you're outside of the Pokemon card game trading community. For you, it's a piece of cardboard. But inside that community, inside that culture, it does have that value. So who, who are you to say what something is worth? If you exist outside of that culture, if you exist outside that community, what you think doesn't really matter. Does it? Does it really matter? Like... I mean, what makes a physical product with a, a markup that is inflated and is assigned by collectors within a community and culture, what makes a physical product an asset that you already don't participate in and believe in? What makes that more of a legitimate to where you'll shrug your shoulders and not say jack about it? What makes a digital version of that same thing any less intrinsically valuable to the culture and community of people who believe in it? Who are you to say that? Like, like why, why is um, 
a script from the original Star Wars valuable? Why is it? It's because the community says it is. Why is something with George Lucas's signature on it valued? It has no utility. It has no utility to have a piece of paper with George Lucas's signature on it. It has no utility. None. It serves no purpose. But it is valuable and meaningful to the people that it is valuable and meaningful to now, isn't it? The difference is we won't debate that. We won't debate that. But you're going to debate it with digital. You're going to debate it with digital. As if you yourself do not participate and do not value and do not spend money on purely digital experiences and purely digital assets even now. You're going to sit here on a digital platform and debate the value of digital versus analog. That's adorable. So that's the thing. That's the thing about it. Value and cost are two different things. As my friend Clover Tack is saying, value and cost are two different things. People value what they value. And what's valuable to like, you know, there, there might be something that for all you know, if something has sentimental value to me, what price will I pay for that? It may not be even a reasonable price to you, but you know, it's whatever. So again, if you're if you aren't a nerd who cared about Yu-Gi-Oh cards, Magic the Gathering cards, Pokemon cards, like then guess what? Those things mean zero to you. They mean nothing to you, but to the community and culture that belongs to that, they get to assign the value and they get to assign the price and they are happy to pay it and they're doing that with each other exclusively. And that's what we're really talking about here. If you don't understand certain things, it's because it belongs to an exclusive community, like a fraternity or a sorority. The things that a fraternity or a sorority do aren't going to make sense to you because you're an outsider. You're an outsider. It doesn't need to make sense to you because you're not part of the brotherhood or the sisterhood. You're not part of the fraternity. You're not part of the sorority. So it doesn't matter to you, and it isn't meaningful to you. And it doesn't need to be, and they don't need to explain it to you. So you see what I'm saying? That is the thing here. So let's talk about something that's a more legitimate argument. Let's talk about the environmental impact on it. Here's my thought on the environmental impact on it. Agent Smith was right. Human beings basically operate like viruses. We consume resources. We don't form an equilibrium with the environment. And there's no net upside of human beings existing on Earth except that we want to. The end. We are the problem. We are the single greatest threat to the planet. The end. Human beings are the single greatest threat that Earth has. The end. That's the argument. If you want to make an argument about environmental impact, the worst thing that exists for the Earth is human beings existing. But I kind of like human beings existing. The environmental impact of NFTs is no different than the environmental impact of, and actually I think I checked, I checked this on an environmental watchdog website. I think that the environmental impact of TikTok is significantly, significantly more than any other social media website and it's not even close, according to what I was researching. You guys can do your own research, but I was looking at, God, what was it? Um, let me see if I can even pull it up. But it was Gen Z's favorite website 
is TikTok. I don't think that's debatable. Gen Z cares more about um, it, the environmental impact of NFTs probably than anybody. And yet Gen Z's favorite platform is TikTok. TikTok is massively one of the most damaging to an environment. Um, and, I, and I think it's not even close. Um, trying to find the website that I had before that has that information. Because there is a, it's Green Matters. I think it's Green Matters, I think. I have to double check. There's a chart. Was it Green Matters or was it something else? Green Specter. That's it. Greenspecter.com. Okay. So I'm going to share my screen for the YouTube audience. I'll just read everything out loud for the audio only uh, audience. And here we go. It's not even close. It's not even close. Carbon impact of social media applications, newsfeed, green, greenspecter.com, October 2021. And it's not even close, I think, if you look at it. It says smaller is better. So I'm looking at this. Smaller is better. And, well, TikTok, then Reddit, then Pinterest, then Instagram, then Snapchat then Facebook, then LinkedIn, then Twitter, then Twitch, and then YouTube. And this is the projected uh, ranking in carbon impact per social networks applications newsfeed. Okay, so let's see. And a lot of people don't like the, oh, well, arguing for what's worse impact. But again, I'm partly using the fact that um, most like most young people love to bring up the environmental impact of cryptocurrencies, blockchain and NFTs. They're not going to give up TikTok though. They're not going to give up TikTok. They're not going to give up YouTube. They're not going to give up Twitter. They want to be Twitch streamers. You want you ask any young person, they want to be a YouTuber, they want to be a Twitch streamer, they want to be a TikToker. Massive environmental impact. Young people are the single largest users of um, graphics cards for online gaming and for 4K live streaming. So online streaming, your Netflix, Hulu, Crunchyroll, Disney+, all of that. Negative environmental impact, massive carbon footprint, live streaming has more user adoption it's much worse than the micro community that exists around crypto and NFTs right now. And crypto and NFTs will get better on energy consumption over time, not worse. Live streaming probably will get worse in terms of our consumption. Live stream will get worse. More people will do it. Videos, more people will get 4K televisions. Those things will get worse. And those things also will produce more plastic and more waste on top of that. Prove me wrong. Graphics cards, gaming, gaming consoles, gaming PCs, more graphics cards, more chips, more environmental waste, more e-waste, more long-term consumption of anyone who wants to become a YouTuber, a streamer, 
So that's more lights, more cameras, more electricity, more audio, more live streaming. That's all bad for the environment too. So is everyone getting off of YouTube? Is everyone going to give up their dream of being a live streamer? Is everybody under 25 that wants to be a content creator going to give up on it and save the environment? And the answer is no. And that's not even a reasonable thing to do. So why crypto? Why target crypto then? I, I know. And see, and um, Caratube says, that's been the only logical arguments I've seen or heard from this NFT debate besides art theft. So yeah, so like, I'm like, I'm looking at this all holistically. Most people haven't given it most thought like more thought. Most people haven't given it more thought. And to Martin's point, there's a guy here, Martin Jackson. He says, environmental issue with NFT also depends on what currency it's used on. And by that, he means what platform and that there are proof of work versus proof of stake and that proof of work uses more energy. And that's where things like Ethereum 2.0 come in. And so the thing is, all of that can uh, be improved upon and then, okay, let me tell you my thought on why the environmental argument is made. So in the political sphere, in the political sphere, you clearly have um, people who are more left-leaning in America and people who are more right-leaning in America. Um, climate change should be bipartisan. Climate change should be an all-hands-on-deck thing. Look, I actually, I believe in man-made climate change. I'm old school. I'm 37. I grew up on Captain Planet. To be very real with you, a lot of times, I'm actually just a little bit salty as an uh, older millennial about all these people who have opinions about the environment and y'all don't know who Captain Planet is. Like, I'm like, why am I listening to people talk about this that don't know who Captain Planet is? <laughs> like, again, that's just my little joke. My little joke is just like, if you don't know who Captain Planet is, I want to hear it. Like, uh, so that's just my personal little joke as an old timer. Back in my day, I was an original eco-nut. I was the original tree hugger. I watched Captain Planet and I knew the whole damn theme song. So, you know, that's old man Roberto shouting at the internet. And so, um, Captain Planet, he's a hero, gonna get demonetization for this song. So, yeah. Um, so here's my thought on um, why that becomes the argument. The argument for it, some people sincerely are making the argument based on the environment. My belief, however, is that that's how they can get the most people on their side which is more uh, progressive left-leaning folks, they can get them more on their side if they use the environmental argument around this because um, progressive left-leaning people also are anti-establishment a lot of times, and they also have, rightfully so, grievances with the big banks and with a lot of the massive things that happen with the big banks. Uh, they have issues with people being underbanked and people being unbanked, the inequalities there. Uh, they have... Um, the, the massive um, corruption, impropriety, um, the, 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 the lending, the predatory lending, all of those things, progressives, those are their points. Those are their arguments, and rightfully so, by the way. So the thing is, cryptocurrency addresses a lot of those things. Cryptocurrency addresses a lot of those things. Here's the thing about that. That's a good argument. Here's the problem. Everyone who gets into digital cryptocurrency becomes anti-capital gains tax because once you become invested, and it means that if you get into cryptocurrency, especially if you're younger or if you haven't done traditional investing in stocks, if you've done traditional investing in stocks, 
Robinhood, Webull, public.com, uh, Acorns, M1 Finance. If you get into stocks, which is, oh, wait, let me think about what the government goes after. They go after Coinbase. They go after, uh, put pressure on things like Robinhood and these central trading apps, and they want to look at that and regulate that. They want to regulate social media. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Cryptocurrency, um, online uh, trading with n little or no fees, um, and your social media and your fruit. Wait, 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 wait. Your ability to invest, your ability to emancipate yourself from the banks, your ability to start building wealth for yourself, and your free speech. Oh, those are the things we're going to regulate. We're not going to regulate uh, the price of prescription drugs. Okay, I see you. Right. So, what happens there is, and again, I hate politics, but this is about money and this is about your freedoms. And so, the, the thing is, when I see that, it makes me skeptical and it makes me sketched out. Because I'm like, if they want to help people, there's ways to help people. And this would be, in theory, one of them in terms of using technology to help people like we always have, right? So the thing is, a lot of people that I know, they're progressive and left-leaning. They actually like cryptocurrency until they hear the words climate change. And the reason I believe that a part of that exists in the rhetoric around it without acknowledging any of the upsides or how it can be addressed or how people are working on the climate change part of it or how it parallels into other things that are worse um, is that, well, people who become invested, whether it's in stocks or cryptocurrency, immediately start being negative about the idea of capital gains tax and about the idea of taxing unrealized gains on assets, which the left wants to do, the progressives want to do, as a, um expansion of gaining more tax revenue for the policies that they want to roll out, tax and spend. So if you start becoming an investor in cryptocurrency and you start seeing gains in your cryptocurrency, um, you start wait, realizing, wait, I want my capital gains taxes to stay low or be lower, or I don't want them to tax me on money that I haven't realized and actually gained yet. I don't want to pay taxes on a theoretical advantage that I have rather than a realized advantage. So the moment that people get invested in cryptocurrency, well, they start being against capital gains taxes. And if they start being against capital gains taxes, it becomes very difficult to tax the rich because people realize, wait a minute, you're going to tax the middle class and the working class and even the poor along the way to get at the rich because of the mechanism you have to do to get there. Because since the rich largely don't do earned income, their wealth generation and their net worth exist in the form of capital gains from assets. And once you put two and two together and you realize that, well, all of a sudden you've changed some of your policy positions really quickly. But if you can specifically say climate change, environment, and tax the rich all in the same sentence, well, it becomes very hard for people to move the needle on saying, wait a minute, I'm going to come to more of a middle ground here on the things that uh, I look at the policies I vote on and uh, not really choose sides here. I'm going to pick my side. It becomes very easy to keep people on your team instead of them choosing their side, which is what we should probably do. We shouldn't choose the left or the right. We shouldn't choose left or blue. We should choose ourselves. But here's the problem. That's not in the best interest or the left or the right, so they're not going to really make it easy on you to do that. And again, I'm not trying to be political. Like I said, my answer here is agnostic. My answer here is you should do what's in your best interest. You should do what's in your best interest. Whatever you think that is and whatever that looks like, 
instead of what is in the best interest of a political identity that you could belong to by agreeing to their positions. So again, we're being divided. That's why we live in the most divisive, polarized time you or I have ever known is because they use wedge issues to divide us. They try to use our sincerely held beliefs for their interest and leverage us. And they can do it if we become uneducated, and they can do it if we don't look for the patterns and look at what they gain and what we lose. And so, again, remember, I was skeptical about this at the beginning. I was skeptical about this in 2013. But I learned, and I grew, uh, and I ended up coming to different conclusions because I educated myself. And again, I'm not here to tell you what to invest in, by the way. Now, there's somebody here who's saying uh, cryptocurrency looks like a Ponzi scheme to me and you're Gen X. Okay, you're Gen X. So that puts you in the same generation as like um, my mom and like her cousins and my aunties and uncles and stuff like that. Okay. So the thing is, there are people who use cryptocurrency and run Ponzi schemes, but that doesn't make cryptocurrency itself a Ponzi scheme. It's also not necessarily entirely greater fool theory. It is a matter of this. There are over 50 million Americans that are invested in Bitcoin, and there are about roughly 75 million Americans that hold a cryptocurrency or digital currency of some kind. I want you to realize that 70 million people in America in 2020 voted for either Joe Biden or Donald J. Trump. 50 million Americans are invested in Bitcoin. About 70, 75 million Americans are invested in some digital currency of some kind. Think about that. Just think about that for a moment. What's the likelihood that every single one of those people is a participant in a Ponzi scheme? It is very statistically, mathematically unlikely, unlikely that they're in a Ponzi scheme. That's a few, two million, that's too many, that's too many millions of Americans to truly, truly be involved in a Ponzi scheme, if you think about that. I mean, are you so sure, are you so certain, are you so certain that cryptocurrency is a Ponzi scheme in and of itself and is not real if 70 million Americans are actively invested in some form of digital currency in some form of crypto. See, because that's really hard for me to swallow that that many Americans are just victims of a Ponzi scheme. That doesn't seem to be a rational conclusion to get to. Not to mention, since they did put in their own money, that by its nature makes it valuable because if the fiat dollar that is not backed by a gold standard, as not backed by a gold standard, that is vulnerable to inflation when the government and the Fed agree to print more money and devalue the dollar, and when, what, was it now 80% of the money that's in circulation in this country that has ever existed was just produced in the last two or three years? Is that right? Is it about 80% of the money that's ever existed in America? 80% of the dollars that have ever existed in America were just created in the last two years. Am I, am I, is that the right number? Is that what's, is that what it is? Is that what's happening right now? But crypto is a Ponzi scheme and crypto is a problem. We're at 
what is it now, 6.5% inflation as of December of 2021? We're at 6.8% inflation now, 6.5, 6.8, something like that. Probably going to go to 7 at some point. Is that what we're doing? But you're skeptical about cryptocurrency. Right. Make that make sense to me. And I'm not saying that completely condescendingly or reductively. I'm like, if, if you can make that make sense to me, if you can explain to me the belief in that more than something that tens of millions of Americans have collectively, willfully decided to come together on without the government forcing their hand, which is the real difference. We didn't really, we, like the government makes us value the dollar and fiat and USD. We volunteered when it came to crypto. That's the difference. So 50 to 70 million Americans collective agreement on the value of something. That means nothing to you. That means absolutely nothing to you in terms of its legitimacy. But the government saying something immediately, it makes it legal, mind you, but you believe in that more? When you weren't even really given a choice in that? You weren't allowed to opt out of it? You weren't allowed to opt out, but you believe in that more. You weren't given any choice, you weren't given any freedom there, and you believe in it more? I want you to think about why. I'm not telling you you're wrong to do that. I'm wanting to ask you why. I want to understand that. I want to understand why something that you can't opt out of, do you hold it to be more real than something that people made a choice collectively about? Because I think that that is worth considering. And most people won't put it to you like that because they're very ideological about this, whereas I'm trying to be rational about this. Well, see, the thing is, I respect people. Like, I, the thing is, I, I make the assumption that it's possible for me to be wrong about things. So whether you want to say, well, 70 million people believe in this crazy thing or that crazy thing, what I'm willing to do is I'm, I'm willing to entertain that, well, why do they believe in that? What was their basis? Does it hold any weight whatsoever? Because the thing is, it's not for no reason. There is a reason. And the thing is, I respect people enough to consider what their reasons might be and consider the possibility that I might be wrong about something. And the thing is, that's the other problem is we've gotten to a place in these kind of conversations where we won't respect somebody having a different opinion and ask them, well, why do you think that? Why do you believe that? Because I'm laying out the reasons that I believe in this technology. I walked you through the history of Web 1.0 and the skepticism around that and how people were wrong. I walked you through Web 2.0 and why people were wrong about that too. And they had their skepticism and their criticisms of that too. I walked out for you why the same environmental arguments about Web 3.0 technologies apply to Web 2.0 technologies that people aren't demonizing because they would have to give them up because we already have these things and we wouldn't give them up.
I mean, and and someone will use the argument. I mean, someone even is using the argument that well, like, uh, people don't believe in the vaccine. I, like, it would be a different half of the country that didn't believe in the vaccine if Donald Trump was elected. If Donald Trump was elected, people said they wouldn't take the Trump vaccine. I'm not convinced that everybody who took the vaccine just believes in vaccines or believes in science. They picked a side. That's what happened. People picked a side. If Trump had come out pro-mask, then Trump supporters would have been pro-mask. It's not a matter of what people believe in. Sometimes it's who they believe in. It's a matter of who they believe in. People aren't making these decisions on rational, logical things. They're making it on fear. Oh, I don't believe in crypto because I'm afraid I'll get scammed or it's a Ponzi scheme. It's not about you understanding the technology. It's not about any research. It's about you've seen people get scammed. You've heard of people getting scammed. People that you know and respect have said that it's all a scam. So you believe that. That's not based on evidence. That's not based on logic. That's not based on science. People who rolled with Trump, if he had went for the mask, they probably would have went for the mask. He actually, I think I remember that like he had a rally or something he said to take the vaccine and people at that point they were too far gone they didn't want to people believe what they want to believe for reasons when you understand their reasons you can make an appeal to them when you understand what they logically value or if they're not making a decision from logic you would make an appeal to what they emotionally value and what they believe in and what is meaningful to them and you would talk to them and you would meet them halfway but you can only do that if you respect people and if you genuinely care about them more than you care about being right if you care about people more than you care about right, being right, you won't try to convince them based on what you believe or why you believe that. You'll understand what they believe and why, what they care about and why. You'll understand their basis for making choices and decisions, and then you'll be able to make an appeal to them. But if you refuse to understand and listen to other people and treat them with respect and talk to them with respect, you'll never really truly be able to make an appeal to them that's effective or convince them of everything. And part of the reason we probably don't have a better situation when it comes to things like the vaccines and the virus is because no one respects each other anymore enough to talk and listen and hear each other and see each other and actually care about each other more than they care about putting points on the board and being right or winning one for their team. You know, my arguments in favor of this are technologically based because of what I care about and because of what I've seen the evidence of and what problems I see it being a solution to. I see there being now a way for us. I believe that we will live in a world very shortly where we can consider ourselves digital citizens. If you're a digital citizen, then there are digital goods and digital experiences that you want to have and that you're already having. I believe a system that can allow for transparency, chain of custody, and those things, and being tied to that to a unique individual, regardless of what your avatar identity is, and basically going with you, I believe in that. That's why blockchain technology is going to be great, because we can have chain of custody and certification of ownership, and we can have transparency of transaction, and also we can have peer-to-peer -peer services and peer-to-peer -peer transactions and commerce, and we don't have to necessarily involve the major banks and institutions in that, which is to our benefit, which is largely to our benefit. 
Yeah, Rock Nation. Uh, yep, it flipped. A lot of people were against it uh, when it was Trump, and then they flipped when he got voted out. Yeah, no, I agree. And that's what made me realize that people were not making rational decisions. You can make a rational, educated decision about something, and the thing is you'll make it whether it puts you aligned with someone you dislike or not because the reasoning is sound. You can find sound reasoning and agreement if you're logical with someone that you dislike. And so um, it's about the logic. It's about the systems. It's about understanding the material science of things and making a reasonable decision about what is factually or logically correct or as close to correct as you're capable of understanding at the time. You got to work with what you know at the time. Those facts could evolve or change with new information or new variables added to the situation. So you have to obviously, you know, you can't be rigid about a lot of these things. You have to be open-minded. The reality can shift in real time because new elements can be introduced. Hurricane Hennessy says, main thing is protecting your crypto wallet. The best you can do is spread into different wallets when it's a big lump sum of money to protect it much better against hacks and scams if you make a mistake. You know, that's true for fiat too. That's true for fiat too, not having a bunch of your money consolidated in a single bank account, especially if we're talking about um, FDIC insurance, there's a cap. There's a cap on how much money is FDIC insured. Like holding more money in there than that is uh, in a regular bank with fiat is dangerous too. We're acting like a lot of these things that we're worried about being vulnerable to with crypto don't already exist with traditional banking institutions and with fiat currency. You have a lot of these like things that people are worried about with crypto. I'm like, well, you still have that problem with fiat. You would still have that problem. You still have that problem. The power grid situation and the environmental impact with our traditional banking system is not improving. That's getting worse. That's getting worse and more people use it. And there's not really a good solution to fix that one outside of what digital currencies and blockchain and crypto is allowing for, because that can be improved upon. Our old uh, financial infrastructure is so bloody archaic that it's like basically not built to scale. You know, just like our traditional infrastructure is like falling apart right now, it's almost as if these things weren't built to last. <laughs> Think about it. It's, oh, wait, these things that we built over the last 100 years were not built that well and we're not built to last whoops <laughs> oh the new stuff might be better oh whoops <laughs> like i mean come on it's not that complicated of a of a prospect to look at objectively and say oh <laughs> and again i understand that it's confusing because it's new it's always confusing when something's new. And I don't pretend to fully 1000% know everything about this or comprehend this either. I'm a student of the new era, just like all of you. I'm a student of Web 3.0, just like anybody else, just like I had to learn YouTube from nothing, just like I had to learn Web 2.0 from nothing, just like I had to learn how to code. I'm a student of this too. But what I do believe in is that this is the future of creators and makers. And this is a natural evolution and progression of the same technology that uh, emancipated us from inst media institutions. Well, if Web 2.0 emancipated us from uh, the gatekeepers of media and of commerce and things like that, then Web 3.0 is an evolution of that that also then takes on the banks. So, yay. I mean, 
that's where where the what we're looking at is the evolution of technology progresses to giving us more freedom more options it gives us more of a voice it gives us more of a say it gives us more ways to do transactions it gives us more way to monetize um and that is a threat to anyone with established power it just is it is disruptive and it is chaos injected into their situation while giving us leverage and the ability to create order in our lives for the first time in a meaningful way. So the thing is, this is about freedom at the end of the day. This is about power dynamics at the end of the day. This is about leverage. And it's about the leverage being distributed across a greater number of people versus consolidated in the hands of the few. It's always been about that. That is what technology ultimately, that's the problem all technology solves. When Gutenberg did the printing press, he was branded as a heretic. He was branded as a heretic because his technological revolution of creating literacy would take power away from the nobility and away from the church. Because now, if the average man, if the common man could read, it was going to be much harder to leverage them. They were going to have more options. They were going to be more educated, and more educated people can fight back. So the printing press, the printing press was a revolution in its own right and an act of rebellion. I mean, and I think even you who are crypto skeptics, you have to agree that the disruption of something like the printing press was a direct threat to the established power structure and power dynamics of that time and created more freedom, more speech, more commerce and a more educated and empowered class from the bottom up. And it weakened the power of people at the top for that to exist, right? Are you gonna say that the internet didn't do the exact same thing and that our current technology doesn't do the exact same thing? What do you think the evolution of that does? The internet was the single most powerful revolutionary disruptor for the common man since the printing press. It scaled the ability of someone's um, ability to become wildly educated. It increased our ability to communicate and share information. It allowed us to hold people in power accountable. It gave us that in a way that nothing since the printing press ever has. Don't you think the evolution of that is scary to people who already have power? And don't you think it most benefits the people who don't have any? And so I kind of agree with some of what James is saying here. Um, personally believe Web 3.0 is the return of, of open Web 1.0 tech that was abandoned like personal websites and RSS feeds. Most people in the web are in little silos controlled by Google, Amazon, Facebook. See, I agree with that. I agree with that. And that's why I'm in favor of these Web 3.0 technologies. And yes, it's going to be the wild, wild west for a while. I mean, YouTube, you guys were, most of y'all probably weren't around back in old YouTube, old YouTube was pretty dark sometimes it was the wild wild west yeah i mean do you you know why some uh og youtubers got canceled it's because youtube was the wild wild west back in the old days and then when the world became civilized i guess or whatever those things weren't okay and those people weren't allowed to exist anymore online like um and so 
right now we're going through a phase in the web 3.0 transition of the wild wild west and yeah there's going to be collateral damage there always is with these technologies and i'm not saying it's a good thing i'm saying it's inevitable it's i'm saying gee oh wow i couldn't have seen that coming it's like yeah of course i can see it coming and again i'm not as sympathetic to the scam arguments because again i believe that the best way to be inoculated against scams is to be an educated person who makes sober and responsible decisions with money and to not get into bed with dubious people with bad reputations. I mean, there's not anyone that I've looked at that has ran like a, 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 a crypto scheme or a Ponzi scheme or whatever that I'm like, I would, that I would look at and say, oh, gee, that's a good guy. Oh, gee, you know, like that's the most trustworthy person. In the world. Like, no, no. So, and I understand that that's not obvious to everybody and not everyone is a good judge of character and not everyone does their research. That seems like a problem on the consumer side. And I don't believe in massive, massive protectionist things um, coming there. I think uh, buyer beware is a really good thing. And again, I'm not letting people who do these things off the hook. I'm saying that I don't really like massive government intervention or saying something shouldn't exist. Like, you know, massive intervention or something shouldn't exist. I believe that it ends up hurting um, more people when we do something like that and we decide, oh, we got to babysit everyone. We got to childproof everything. We got to protect everything. It's like, uh, no, I don't think that that's a good idea. I think that that's a horrible idea. I think sometimes you got to let these things play out. People will learn. People will learn. Sometimes lessons are painful. It is what it is. People will learn. People will grow up. Hurricane Hennessy says, I know blockchain gaming will be revolutionary in the future. Oh, I agree. I agree. I mean, gamers and gaming culture will be the first people to truly, truly embrace this because it's nothing new to the gaming culture. We've been dealing in digital assets, digital lifestyle, and valuing that thing for a very long time. So those of us in the gaming community, oh yeah, we 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 got we got the deal. We understood it early. Yeah, a lot of this does remind me of the YouTube adpocalypse, to be honest. And that's why I'm like, nope, been there, done that. I'm like, nope. Yeah, yeah, just a little bit of it does remind me of the YouTube adpocalypse. But I'm like, there was a lot of like, you know, like, I don't think, you know, I'd, I, I think that we got to roll with the punches here sometimes. And that we got to just let the markets decide on certain things. You know, I mean... If it becomes a truly material problem that causes true material harm at a massive level, then that's different. But like, I don't like where a lot of this is heading in terms of just like, oh, I'm scared, lock everything down. Like, up, oh, clamp down on it, shut it down, turn it off. Da, 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 da. Like, I'm like, I don't think that's a good thing. I think we can be a little bit I think we can have a thicker skin than that. I think we can be a little bit braver than that. I think that we'll be better off if we are. You know, if what we have is so great, it won't be crippled so easily. If what we have is so worthy, then it won't be destroyed so easily. We can take a few punches if we're tough enough. If we're tough enough, we can take a few punches. Yeah, you know, that, that's kind of how I feel about it.
But again, it's just like, again, this was my thoughts on this thing. It's not the truth about it. It's not the app. It's not absolute truth. These are my views. These are my opinions. This is what I've come to understand. This is what I've come to believe. We have to face the dark side of everything. You know, capitalism isn't just some arbitrary thing. Capitalism is built into human nature. It is who we are. As a species, we would get there. We're not altruistic. We're not altruistic. We don't do things without we like we don't do things that are aren't transactional most of the time. We're we as a species are capitalist. It's inherent in us. You can't look at human nature and not see it. It's what we are. You can argue that sometimes we can do a little better than that, but that's not our default. Our default is capitalism. Our default is that. It doesn't have to be, however, cronyism. It doesn't have to be corruption. It doesn't have to always be about our entirely most base version of our instincts. But inherently, as a species, you cannot look at our behavior honestly and earnestly and not realize that more than anything, capitalism is probably the most reflection of how we operate as human beings and what our fundamental nature looks like. When you strip all of our ego away, this is what we are. This is what we are. And the thing is, it's okay to look at and embrace some of your dark side or some of your lesser qualities, warts and all. If you refuse to do that, all you end up with is self-loathing and self-hatred. If you have to rake yourself over the coals for every impure thought that you have or anything you do that's less than generous or less than noble, it is okay to be less than noble sometimes, you know. It's not such a terrible thing. It is okay to be selfish sometimes. It's not such a terrible thing. You just need to learn not to take it too far because that's not good for you and it's not good for other people at a certain point. The, the rejection of our nature, the rejection of our, our, our shadow self, our dark side, is it's self-loathing and it's self-hatred instead of having a holistic view of our humanity and embracing our humanity and learning to love ourselves warts and all and be more accepting of ourselves and more accepting of other people's faults and then having tolerance and grace and listening to each other and learning to respect each other even the things that we disagree with and learning that if there's something you find likable or admirable about somebody, that might be enough to tolerate the things you don't like about them. At least it should be a start. And so we could be much more mindful and much more thoughtful about that instead of trying to attack everything that's impure and everything that's imperfect. These technologies aren't perfect and neither are we. And they never will be. And neither will we. There will not be perfect technologies. There's not a technology that will meet every single one of your ethical standards. There's not a company that will meet every one of your ethical standards. There's not a person that will meet every single one of your ethical standards. And even if they did, you'll contrive some way to move the goalpost because human beings are just jackasses like that. <laughs> Someone can check every one of your boxes and you'll invent three more just to see them fail. Because you're a human being and that's your pathology. That's how we work. Ask every child who's ever disappointed their parent. <laughs> like, that's like, oh, yeah, I can do everything and you'll find three things. You'll invent three new more things. You'll move the goalpost. That's how it is. Maybe that's just me. Maybe that's just my childhood. <laughs> but, uh, but I digress. Like, all, all, all kidding aside is that we have to learn 
that progress is the goal and not perfection. And we need to stop punishing imperfection. And we have to learn how to live in a world with imperfect people, imperfect technologies, imperfect companies, and imperfect systems while working to improve them in a reasonable, thoughtful way at a reasonable and thoughtful pace. Not overnight, just because it would be convenient for you. You're trying, people are trying to have it all and they're trying to have it all at once. And that's the problem with protectionist policies. And that's the problem with also people getting duped by scams. It's because everyone's trying to have everything all at once. Instead of slowing down and being thoughtful. If you slow down and you're thoughtful, it solves a lot of these problems. It really does. And it's the most reasonable thing we can do is just to take a beat and look back and even sometimes be a little bit more objective, take our feelings out of it and say, okay, well, what does this look like and why? And okay, well, what would be reasonable? Who wins? Who loses? Who benefits? How? Why? Is there a way for more people to win? Is there a way to minimize losses? Is there a way to minimize pain? Is there a way to get more people more of what they want? Or what would that look like? Can we do more if we do it slower? Or is this urgent enough to demand that we move faster? And what's the collateral? Is it worth it? Long term, what's long term, or how long does it look like? What do we get? What takes us there? Let's be reasonable. Let's be thoughtful. Let's be practical. Let's be logical. Let's slow down and let's take a longer view of things. And let's take our ego out of it. The reason that people demonized the early technology of the internet and wanted to be skeptical is because of their ego and because they couldn't see direct value in it for them. They didn't consider the value to people who aren't them. They didn't consider the value to people who needed those resources. People don't consider the, the point of view of somebody that is disenfranchised from their own prevailing point of view. I've considered the other side on a lot of these things. It's why I know like, also how to engineer the perfect rhetoric to argue against myself. The rhetoric to argue against myself, and that's why I also understand the motivations to argue against myself. If I'm someone who... If I'm someone who wants to desperately tax the rich and I decide that unrealized capital gains are the way to do it, the adoption of people doing crypto and stock trading at a younger and younger, younger age eliminates the base of voters that I can get to agree with me to go after rich people because now it has an impact to them. So I have to take something else they value and use that to make them care about it more than they care about their own wealth building, their own creation, wealth creation, or more than they care about sticking it, rightfully so, to the banks. Because the people that decide to get in on GameStop and to get in on AMC and do that stuff and do the meme stocks and stick it to the institutions, stick it to the hedge fund managers, well, Washington and the establishment you know, including these people who um, they thought were on their side, all were like, no, 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 no. And this is financial disruption. They all consolidated the establishment, all rallied both sides. And they were like, oh, no, 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 no. You guys can't be doing this. And that was regular stocks. That wasn't even crypto. Same thing. These people are coming after crypto too. So wait, meme stocks, y'all are slapping away the hands saying they can't go after these hedge funds and the, uh, the people shorting these companies. And then you're going to make the same decision on them crypto. Well, why would somebody do that? Why would somebody do that? Well, you would do that because if that happens and people get invested, they'll start becoming more educated about money. They become more educated about money. They start realizing you ain't helping them. You ain't looking out for them. You start realizing, oh, wait, 
if they're going to tax unrealized capital gains, that won't just affect rich people. That'll affect me too. They can't just target the rich. They'll write the law and that'll affect me too because I got into GameStop, I got into AMC, or I got into crypto or whatever. Oh, wait, 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 wait. No, don't touch their money because don't touch my money. That's what happens. I've talked to people and that's where they ended up. And so if I was a politician that wanted to institute something like unrealized capital gains or raise the capital gains tax or do any of these things, then I'd have to make people like either feel that like I either have to condescend to people that are doing the meme stocks and I definitely have to start making laws that make it uh, more difficult to do cryptocurrency and I have to find ways to demonize that and I have to slow down the adoption of those things because then it counters the interest of me preserving power if I'm doing that. If I'm somebody in government that wants to preserve my power, wants to keep having the, the banks and have Wall Street continue to back my campaign and help me raise money, then that's what I would have to do if I'm in that position. I would have to take that stance. So I, ex I know exactly how to make arguments to um, proceed with that kind of agenda because I, I was in debate team in school, so I can think about it from the other side. I can go to the other side and say, okay, this is what I got to do. This is what I got to argue. This is what I have to do to divide them on this. I have to get them to care more about this than this other thing that they would otherwise care about that's in their interest. I would have to do that if I was going to win the debate for my side. If I was going to win the debate for my side, I have to do that. I have to win the audience over, and so I have to find something they care more about. And that's what you would do. You know, I've, I've, I've looked at it. I've looked at it from as many angles as I'm capable of. And so the conclusions that I came to was I looked at the smartest people in the world. I looked at people like Alexis Ohanian. You know, I looked at uh, people like Alex Becker. I know a lot of people don't like him because of his personality. I looked at a lot of these people that are in technology. I looked at a lot of these people that left the traditional banking institutions. I looked at people like Chamath Palihapitiya. I looked at people like David Sachs and I looked at what they were saying. And so I'm like, okay, these people are smarter than me by leaps and bounds and it's not even close. They understand this, they believe in this, they have solid reasoning, they're putting their money where their mouth is. So I'm like, okay, if they, what, they know so much that I don't know, and they're explaining and introducing to me things that I understand and that I can know. And when I look into it, it makes sense. Then I think about it with the limited knowledge that I have. I ask other people that I think are educated. I look at the trends. I look at it and I say, okay, this is real. This is happening. This is happening on a cultural level. This is having on a technology level. And here are the things that it looks like to me that have a track record historically in the past. And if I had believed in it sooner, well, where would I be now? Oh, aha. So when I look at that, I can't ignore those things. I can't ignore the evidence of those things. I can't ignore what I'm seeing when it comes to that. Now, when it comes to, oh, scams and this and that, I'm like, well, those exist in everything. Everything that exists in technology, everything that exists in commerce, everything that exists in fiat has scams to it. Right now, as we speak, there are people who are getting scammed who think that they're buying a PlayStation 5 or an Xbox Series X. And they're getting a box that doesn't have that in it, has an old PlayStation or has like freaking bricks or something. There's people getting scammed every single hour of every single day, whether this exists or not. 
whether this exists or not. And arguing that, oh, it makes it easier. Everything that is not literally everything that is not walk into a building controlled by the federal government and have the government act as the middleman, everything that's not that makes you vulnerable to a scam. Walking out of your door with your debit card in a wallet that isn't um, blocking RF signals leaves you vulnerable to scams in terms of people stealing the your uh your your freaking uh credit card or debit card information right out of the thin air if it's not in an RF uh blocking wallet. Right now, you're you go to um you go to a bar, you go to an ATM, for all you know somebody put a strip inside of the uh swipe and you're going to and they're stealing and skimming your uh credit card information your pin number right off of that thing for all you know for all you know you can literally walk out your door right now swipe your card in the atm swipe your card at the gas station for all you know some hacker just scammed you You're not going to use your debit card. You're not going to use your debit card? For all you know, your waiter or waitress, no offense to them, they could be in a desperate situation and they could be stealing your credit card information. You're not going to go out and eat? Scams are out there. Yeah. And? You're going to, like, if that's the case, what are you going to do? Just carry cash? That's, you know, that's one way to do it. Okay, you carry a bunch of wads of cash around instead of your debit card, you're less likely to get scammed. Oh, wait, you'll get physically robbed. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Trust the institutions? They gambled with your money in 2008. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Not use email? Like, you know, Darth Shady has a point. Phishing scams in email are more rampant than crypto scams. What are you going to do? Just not use email anymore? You're not going to use email anymore. Is that what you're going to do? So again, I understand scams are out there. Scams are real. Yeah, there's rug pulls and there's token scams and crypto scams and FT scams. Sure. There's also email phishing scams. There's also people using debit card swipe scams. There's people doing physical mail scams. Uh, there are people doing fake scams pretending to be the IRS that people fall for all the time. There are lenders and brokers that do reverse mortgage scams. Those are all bad things, and you're not going to just opt out of life. You're not going to opt out of every single level and aspect of life because of the vulnerability to scams. Okay. So revolutionary technology is going to always be initially problematic. It just is. Life is largely a gamble. It is what it is. If you want to live the most safe, most risk-adverse life you possibly can, you're welcome to do that. I don't think that that'll look very happy, though. I don't think that'll be very happy. I don't think it'll be very fruitful. But who's to say? Maybe it is. 
So again, those are my thoughts. My thoughts are that I think, I believe in this technology. I believe in this technology. I believe that everything initially at its start requires energy and risk. And I think that people are going to be skeptical and then they're going to say, yep, I regret it. I missed the boat just like they did <coughs> 10 and 20 years ago. <clears throat> 10 and 20 years ago. And again, I don't say any of this to promote anything. There's nothing I'm promoting. I won't even really tell you besides Bitcoin and Ethereum. I won't even tell you what I'm invested in, in terms of any of the Web 3.0 stuff, any of the blockchain stuff, any of that. Um, I will tell you that I don't have an NFT or token project. And the thing is, I've come to a place to where as much as I kind of want to do one in the future, um, I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for the craze and the hype to die down a little bit. And then... The way I'm going to do it, though, my plan, my plan is I'm probably just going to do it as a secret society because then no one can ever accuse me of trying to do a rug pull or a pump and dump because if I'm literally just doing an NFT token project that is a perks and rewards and a membership community type deal um, that might be for like my 1,000 true fans or it might be a secret society of 100 people or it might be both of those things, I'll just literally do it like in a very private thing maybe even you have to show up to a physical event to even have the option and it will not be for everybody and it will be literally me picking and choosing who even gets to participate in it and i won't do a public thing that anyone can buy into i probably will never do i don't know i'm not swearing up and down they'll never do a publicly available nft or token but in the next couple of years i think i would do something smaller and more private and more intimate with my community and that no i won't even allow everybody who wants in on it to be in on it I won't even let people buy it if they want to. I'll decide who gets to even do that. And then no one can ever accuse me of a scam or a rug pull or a pump and dump or a publicly thing because, I mean, that's what it's gotten to is that literally just even being in favor of blockchain, you're a scammer now. Caring about NFTs at all or mentioning it or defending it, you're a scammer now is the bullshit that it is now. And so if that's the case and everything like that, okay, cool. I believe in this thing. So guess what? I don't even have to get any public cloud off of it. I'll just form a damn secret society and the people who want in uh, that I want to let in will be the people who get in. The people I want to let in are the people who get in. It won't be an opportunity for everybody. I'll go exclusive as hell. I'll just form a secret society and you won't hear jack about it publicly. And then, then it's not some opportunity that everybody can get in and prosper from or grow from or get access to. It'll be me picking and choosing. And I'm okay with that. I mean, I know that sounds horrible. I know that sounds elitist as hell. And that's kind of the point. Point is, it's like, cool. Like, then there's no risk. Nobody can get scammed. No public, no vulnerable people can get scammed then. Because I won't pick people who are risk adverse or have or don't have the ability to support this or would be afraid of losing money or any of that or don't have disposable income. If I don't make it public and I just choose a secret society of people that I handpick and choose, it'll probably be people who have disposable income. It'll probably be people that already are in a networked relationship with me or know me personally. And so it'll be my chosen few. And then nobody has to be worried about it because it doesn't involve them and nobody in the public can get in on it and it doesn't involve you. It can basically be the people who are just early adopters. 
No, I, like, yeah, no, they could say, oh, Martin says, Martin has a good point. Uh, Martin Jackson in the live experience chat is saying, well, now people are just going to say you're the Illuminati. I'm okay with that. I'm okay with it. I'd rather be the Illuminati. I'd rather be, um, you know, uh, you know, I'd rather do that. Uh, you know, I'd like, you know, form a secret society. I'd rather be the Illuminati. And that's a better fit. That's actually dope. I'm down with that. Illuminati confirmed. Let's go. Yeah, James Dean says a regular angel investor can't invest unless they make over 200K for two years. Oh, yeah, that's like, that's a probably a good rule to go. So, yeah, I could go that route. And yeah, that strategy uh, works for the elite. Why not mimic it? Yeah. I mean, at its core, I believe that this was something that was developed that should benefit the masses. The technology should benefit the masses. But until people are willing to accept it, and until people are ready to stop hating on it, and until people um, can somehow differentiate uh, legitimate projects from scams, then I'm fine with introducing a level of elitism into it. And to be honest with you, NFTs kind of already do that, at least the the more popular communities, the more popular NFT communities, you like there's no vulnerable people being scammed because normal people can't afford to be part of those NFT communities. It's it's pretty expensive. Like you'd have to have two or five thousand dollars of like disposable income to be part of these NFT projects. So people saying they're a Ponzi scheme or a scam, I don't know what people are talking about because like like, well, who who's getting scammed there? Like people who have 10 grand in their pocket to burn that week. What are you worried about? Like people who have 10 grand that they can blow on a digital experience or community. That's a very specific type of person who has that kind of money to burn. I don't think you need to be as worried about them. I mean, when it comes to now, when it comes to like meme coin, altcoin stuff, that's different because it's so cheap that that could hurt a large number of people. NFTs are the opposite in a lot of cases. The difference between like meme coins, altcoins, uh, that kind of thing um, is that, yeah, I could see people like putting their last $200 into that, but NFT communities are wildly expensive, like wildly expensive. That's people who have two, five, $10,000. That's a, that's really different. Like that's really different. That's elites. That's elitism at its finest right there. That's not regular people. So NFTs, when you're saying, oh, NFTs are a scam, it's like, what? To rich people? For, for rich people? By rich people? Because like that's, that's for rich people, by rich people. So like as far as most of it. Now, there are some indie artists, and there's a thing there. Um, but in that case, then you're talking about like an indie artist that would theoretically be getting money from rich people, which is usually a good thing. So like, you know. Obviously not a good thing if they are scamming, but it, what I'm getting at is when you're talking about NFTs, you are literally talking about rich people. NFTs are for rich people. You can just basically reduce it down to that. Right now they are anyway. Right now, the NFTs that are represented in crypto art specifically, the NFTs around crypto art are largely for rich people. Right now that's the situation. I would be theoretically more concerned about meme coins and altcoins instead of stable coins. But stable coins, less likely to be a scam because getting to a valuation to where they're uh, over a dollar 
and they become a stable coin, like Ethereum or Bitcoin, obviously, if you really think about that, then, you know, those things make sense because, okay, where's the rug pull going to be on something that's a stable coin? That doesn't make any sense. So if you look at blockchain technologies that revolve more around like Bitcoin and Ethereum, well, that's different, right? If you look at real projects that are like um, the NFT gaming, well, that's different, right? And then... Um, James Dean say, well, with the artist, it's the minting and gas fees where they're getting scammed if they don't have a buyer lined up. James, um, I'm not like, I, th I think you're maybe in the same age as me. Do you remember like actual paints and easels and canvases? Like doing oil painting is about as expensive as minting, like, if you do something like, I believe, uh, OpenSea, it's a one-time fee. I think Shopify is really cheap to mint things now if you're already a paying Shopify member. And the same thing for, I believe, uh, Teespring, right? So artists aren't being scammed on minting things. It's just that digital artists who usually have been able to produce their work for free or for the cost, or for the cost of software. If you're an Adobe subscription payer, whether you have a client lined up or not, or a buyer lined up or not, you're spending $600, sorry, $700 a year if you are an Adobe subscription holder. And you may not make the $700 back because you may not have a buyer lined up. If you are a traditional artist that is doing oil paintings on canvas, you are spending more money than someone is spending to mint an NFT usually, if you are doing that. If you were an old school photographer, if you were an old school photographer, you were spending money on film and your camera before that. And if you're a digital photographer, before you ever make a dime off the photography, if you're doing full frame, you're spending thousands of dollars on camera, lenses, and memory cards before you ever make a dollar. Explain to me how digital artists are being scammed on gas fees because last time I checked, everybody else that wants to make things is spending money to do it aside from the people who've gotten used to using open source software and free platforms to do it for $0 just got spoiled because for hundreds of years, artists have had to spend hundreds of dollars, if not thousands of dollars before they make anything. So explain to me how gas fees are a scam or is, is hardware a scam? Because <laughs> gas fees are a scam, what? Because they're digital? It's like, because they're digital. Because like, how much money do you think these camera gear cost? How much money do you think that traditional film used to cost out for 24 shots? How much money do you think all of that cost? How much money do you think oil paints would cost? How much money do you think um, chalks cost? How much money for canvas? How much money to put your work in a gallery? Do you realize how much it costs to have your stuff in a gallery before it sells? Hiring an art agent? All of that's more expensive than gas fees. Web hosting? Web hosting? Been expensive for a long time. It's relatively cheaper now, and there's some free hosting options. Everybody thinking this is just because uh, they got used to things being free.
People got used to things being free. What do you think it cost? YouTube, doing YouTube is a net negative loss for like two to three years. You go into the hole doing YouTube. YouTube, you go into net negative for two or three years. You do YouTube at sunk cost for two or three years, unless you go viral. <clears throat> what are we talking about? How? It's like anything else. Yu-Gi-Oh cards cost money unless, you, and then if you, you make money back, if you theoretically win a tournament or you sell the cards that you don't like, I mean, it's like everything costs money. Everything costs money. I think when people make those kind of arguments, I think that what happened was we had a generation of people who grew up with too much free stuff. <laughs> people must have grown up with too much free stuff. If that's the argument, if the argument is the gas fees, everyone grew up with too much free stuff. Stuff costs money. Every craft, every hobby, everything I've ever wanted to do, it costs money. There's a lot of free options now, but when I started all this stuff, it cost money. I probably spent more in like color pencils in my lifetime than most people spend to mint, mint an NFT. I mean, God, sketchbooks, um, Copic markers. You know how much a good set of Copic markers cost? You realize if you wanted to be a traditional artist, how much you have to pay for Copic markers? A complete set of Copic markers is $300. What? It's because it's physical? That's not like, like, come on. That's not counting the money for the sketchbooks. Or anything else. Or liner pens. Or any of it. You know? I mean, sheesh. Like, what are we talking about? Yeah, good pens, good brushes, good paints, all of it. Yep, it's expensive. Yeah. I mean, so most of these things that anyone wants to do that has any real upside, a lot of these things with upside, there is some pay-to-play element in all of them. And that's not just in crypto, and that's just not in NFTs, and that's not just in blockchain world. That's even in the real world, especially in the real world, especially in analog. There are some more free things, some more accessible things out there, but a lot of things largely are, um, there is an upfront cost to doing them. You know? So, yeah. So, I mean, I don't love that argument because I think it just kind of ignores traditional art being more expensive. Digital artists have had it good in the sense of their thing costing less, and they've had the ability to scale more than uh, traditional artists. The thing that traditional artists had in their favor was scarcity, and now NFTs introduce that as well. Scarcity physical ownership chain of custody. Well, now people value digital experiences. So that's the new um, upside on that. So yeah, life in general tends to have a pay to play element. And so again, we're duplicating a lot of the um, cost in uh, analog experience over to digital. And in the digital though, the upside is still better. In theory, the upside is still better. So and again, I mean, I'm making, uh, like, I'm trying to make these points 
and I'm not trying to be in any way, like I'm trying to not be condescending about it. I'm trying to be as thoughtful as possible about it because I understand why and where people are coming from and why people are negative about this. I had some negative things early on about this as well. But again, by being more educated and thinking about it and listening and learning, I, instead of trying to prove that I was right about my skeptical points, I validated or invalidated my skeptical points. Uh, Darth Shady asks, Roberto, what are your thoughts regarding NFTs versus intellectual property and copyright? Uh, well, what do you, in what way? In creator ownership or in terms of violating existing copyright or the ability of smart contracts to be an evolution of content ID protections and digital rights management? Because my point of view is this. NFTs, here's another thing for you to understand with NFTs. What if I told you that NFTs are just an expansion of digital rights management? What if I just told you that NFTs are just an expansion of DRM. Does anyone here know what DRM is? Digital rights management? Digital rights management is why when you go ahead and you download something from Apple in terms of, let's say you go and you download, um, like you get a digital pass and it says, hey, you now own a copy of the movie, Venom versus Carnage. Well, as long as you stay within the Apple ecosystem, that movie can be viewed on your Apple TV, your iPad when you're on the plane, your smartphone when you're walking through the airport. But it's the way that it's done and the way it's tokenized is they're tying it to your Apple ID identity to say the chain of custody of ownership is your Apple ID. The way you paid was your credit card or your PayPal, and that's what they have on the transaction. They have the transaction number. You may have noticed that that's not the cleanest way, and it's not even the best experience for you because... Well, that digital rights management exists only within Apple's ecosystem, walled garden, which means that you can't necessarily transfer your ability to watch that movie to your Amazon account when you want to use an Amazon device or when you want to use a Google device. But shouldn't you be able to because you bought the right to a digital experience? Well, in an NFT world, because of the chain of custody in a blockchain world, your movie experience that you paid for that you have the chain of custody of would be able to follow you to every ecosystem. That's the expansion. You want a practical thing about NFTs that's not crypto art, that's not uh, lazy lions or, or bored apes or any of that? Well, here it is. Imagine that you own the rights to any and all digital experiences you have across all environments because your ownership is not disputable. You're welcome. That's what it is. You want a practical application? The practical application is when you buy a movie, when you buy a song, it doesn't matter if you buy it in Apple, doesn't matter if you buy it from Amazon, doesn't matter if you buy it from Google, that experience is something you own and have a right to and you can consume it anywhere it is consumable. Because since every platform has the ability to deliver that experience and they know that you are entitled to that experience because they can verify the ownership, that's it. They know what you have. So does that convince any of you? Does that make more sense to you now? 
Does that make more sense to you in terms of, well, why does NFTs matter? Why does blockchain matter? I made it as simple as I can. You have a right to an experience that you purchased. You shouldn't have to rebuy that thing in a different ecosystem. You have a right to that experience and that experience exists in Apple. That experience exists in Google. That experience exists in Amazon. It's a transaction that you did and that you owned. So now you should be able to have that in any and all situations and circumstances that will allow you to have that experience. Because now you don't have physical, you don't have physical media. When you had physical media, you had the right to play that physical media on every DVD player, every VHS player, whatever it is. You had that right. You had a right to have your media consumption experience anywhere that you had your media asset. But that's when it was physical media. Well, now that's digital media. They say, well, only in the ecosystem that you bought it in. So what if now? You could take it to another level and say, nope, it's an NFT now. You have the right to that experience anywhere that experience can be consumed, just like if you had physical media. That's it. That's probably the simplest way to explain the value of non-fungible tokens and blockchain to normies. That's probably the easiest way to explain it to normies is you, it's digital rights management and no walled garden. You have a right to your digital assets everywhere and anywhere, and we can track who owns what. And you can transfer ownership, meaning, oh, I don't care about this thing anymore. I can transfer the ownership. I can do a transaction. We have chain of custody in the blockchain. Oh, that asset's now transferred to somebody else. And so you can do that. Imagine you have a DVD. You can sell it to your friend. You can sell it to a pawn shop. You can give it away. And now that physical media, you don't have it anymore and you don't have a right to it anymore. You gave it away. It now has new ownership. You can't do that with your digital assets right now. But on the blockchain, you would be able to. You would be able to transfer an asset and have the chain of custody and transaction and a way to validate that. And then anywhere that experience needs to be had, they know who has a right to it. That's it. I think I've stumbled into the easiest analogy and easiest way to make people understand the value of NFTs. Just explain it to them as, again, a way of saying, hey, you own this, you have a right to own this, and you have a right to own this experience. And by the way, you can sell or transfer those rights. Boom. There we go. That's it. So. Does anyone have an argument about why that's not a good thing or why that's not useful? Does anyone want to debate the utility of that? I, I, you know, that's, that's the thing. Um, Carrie tube says like, I want the endless software subscription era to end. I want to own my software again. Um, that could be interesting with smart contracts. I could see some pathway to that with subscription software, in theory. That could make ownership easier and it can make upgrades optional again. It could go back to what you used to have with being able to buy a physical license to software and then opt in or opt out to the upgrades. The problem would be the reason and the problem with non-subscription software is the fact that operating systems will not support the old software after a certain point, forcing the upgrade migration. So there's only so long that you could run um, non-updated software. 
uh, contracts on the blockchain can't be forged. That's a good point. In the long run, that seems like that reduces the worst of the worst of scams and the worst of um, you know bad actors. If blockchain con if smart contracts can't be forged, that seems like that actually eliminates more scams and theft at a higher level. And it seems that this could also be an answer to piracy in some ways. Yep, that was a more helpful explanation. Yeah, I agree. I think that the explanation that anyone needs to give is basically to look at this from that perspective of like, okay, what could we do with physical media that we can't do with digital media? People will accept the problem that it solves from that perspective, I believe. And so I think that that's the best way to um, go there. Because I think the implications of digital currency, I think cryptocurrencies, digital currencies, I think that one's obvious and people get that. I think that NFTs were the thing that they were struggling with. I think NFTs are a thing most people struggle with. So now if you can explain, well, NFTs, and if you explain that it's not just about this crypto art thing and that it's not about that quote unquote fad, then I think, and if you just reduce that to communities and you reduce that down to its trading card games, then sure. So like, yeah. So, so again, I feel like that, and again, that's probably how I explain, if I ever do like a, like what are NFTs video, if I ever do get around to doing a video about that, then what I'll probably end up doing is I will literally just lead with that analogy and explain what, like how this would work theoretically. Like, okay, you have a CD, you have a um, VHS, you have whatever. I'll probably literally just explain it the same way because then people will understand. Because I think I stumbled into the best explanation of like, well, what is it? What's the value? Like, what is it like? Why? What problem? If people are like, what problem does NFTs solve that nobody else solves? I'm like, okay, I can figure it out now. Uh, Darcy says, definitely a comprehensive explanation. Yeah, I think it's the simplest thing. I think it's the simplest way to make it relatable, digestible, understandable to people and them not be intimidated. And I think that that's the best way anyone can explain it. I literally will probably make a YouTube video about that next week. Like, yeah, I'll probably like, yeah. Like, what are NFTs explained as simple as possible? Like, yeah, because that there are going to be people who try to figure it out. And then I'm going to be like, okay, it's not about the crypto art. It's about the technology. That's just something people are doing. They're having fun with it. Here is what the real value of NFTs are. Here's what the value of a non-fungible token is. And so that makes the most sense. So yeah, 
I think that's a good way to uh, bookmark it and to end tonight's podcast. Thank you, everybody who stuck around. Remember, if you're enjoying the program, to give us a review in Apple, give us a five-star rating, give us a wonderful review, um, or even tell us how I can improve the program. This has been my 10th out of 10th day actually doing the podcast. I'm going to hit you all again, hopefully tomorrow, probably earlier than midnight. And so I think that that is where we'll leave it. I really enjoy you all. And as you can see, if you're listening to this in the uh, audio only experience, you are missing out if you are not on the video experience in the live community. So you want to subscribe to YouTube channel, hit notifications. You never know when I'm going to go live because I don't have a schedule for it right now. And this is day 10 out of 10 in a row of me being consistent with the podcast. And so we'll see how long I can keep that going. Anyway, you guys. Let's go ahead and do the outro and then I'll hang around for five minutes with my live audience and that will be a wrap. This episode has ended, but your creative journey continues. Visit createsomethingawesometoday.com and access all links and resources mentioned in today's show, all designed to help you create something awesome today.